Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you you've given it to us to uh, illumine our lives. Father, we're now as, as your people, we um, feel the pressure of being aliens in this world. At times we're worn down by the, the burden of it. So I pray you would lift us up by your word this morning, that by the preached word and by the table that we will turn to in a little while. I pray you'd re-energize us, that you would give us energy with which to toil and uh, Father, we pray. I pray you would convince every heart and every conscience in this room, including my own, that the the pilgrim life is the good life. Empower us by your word and spirit this morning to continue our sojourn. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and read God's word together. First Peter two four through eight. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And this is God's word. You may be seated. from what I've seen and what I've seen in my own life, the church, the church in the West is kind of in a stance of being on the back foot, kind of a defensive position a lot of times. We're faced with challenges, of course, to our faith and our practice. We can be called old-fashioned or bigoted. We can face alienation because we don't really act like our friends act. Uh, This week, at the Meredith, we briefly discussed the fact that even, especially as Reformed Christians, if you hold to truth in any form of certainty, you, you can be viewed as, as arrogant or prideful. Perhaps the greatest challenge I find as a Christian is simply just general apathy toward the things of God. Most anything is on the table for discussion, you know, personal stories, health, family problems, politics, but not where you stand with God. <laughs> Nobody ever raises religious or doctrinal matters in general conversation. So I, was, I would suggest we have it pretty good in, in America as Christians, relatively speaking. Uh, but these types of issues are still real to us and, and they still make it plain to us that this world is not our home. It's not where we belong we don't quite fit in, and we, we recognize we're sojourners and aliens in this world. So what is our response? I think more often than not, our inclination is to move to a defensive position. We encounter resistance, and, and we backpedal. You know, I, I don't want to be the weirdo who brings up religious things. I don't want to be viewed as the, the backwards, old-fashioned, ignorant bigot. 
I don't want people to think I'm a proud know-it-all. We often talk like these these pressures we face are new, but of course uh, this is kind of the Christian reality. It has been. It is now and it will continue to be the Christian reality till Jesus comes back. Christians have always faced uh, alienation because of our ties with this Jesus of Nazareth. So with this alienation in view, my hope is that through going through this text this morning, I hope we will be encouraged by what I call the benefit of belief or the honor of belief. Peter concludes in verse 7 of of this text, so the honor is for you who believe. We may be of low esteem in the eyes of the world, but our position is really one of highest esteem in in God's economy. So my hope is that a glimpse of, of the glory that we have with our standing in Christ will move us to a deeper sense of security and, and even boldness as we face the challenges that we face in the world. So there's kind of two main elements to this text. First is the honor of belief, and second, the shame of unbelief. And we cannot already see in that, that dichotomy that Peter puts forward that the opinions of the world are kind of flipped on their head. So first I want to draw out four ways in which it's an honor to be a Christian in any context. Four ways. And the first is the honor of belief in God's cornerstone. The honor of belief in God's cornerstone. It says in verse 4, as you come to Him, that is the Lord from verse 3, which we'll see is Jesus, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So the first thing I want to point out about this is that as believers, we identify with the one who's rejected by the world. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. This phrase, as you come to him, I take to mean as you come to Jesus for eternal life, for life and salvation. Uh, it's similar to the way Jesus uses it in John. You know, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. I think that's the sense in which he means coming to, to Jesus here. So coming to Jesus is not like coming to the Niagara Falls for a glimpse of something beautiful. It's not a sightseeing adventure. This coming to Jesus is the one in which we're united to Him. In the sense of of John 15, we identify with Him, we're united as the branch is united uh, to the vine. So, in coming to Jesus, we then are united to and identify with a person that is rejected by the world. So we shouldn't expect to be greeted with applause and adoring fans when we announce an affiliation with Jesus. Jesus goes on to say in chapter 15 of John, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's very cheery, isn't it? Where's the honor in that? I, I thought we were talking about honor. The next thing I want to point out is that the rejected one is God's chosen 
and precious one. Peter continues in verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you're like in a room with people and there's a bunch of opinions like at work and there's opinions on, on how to solve a problem, but then the boss walks in like somebody with, with real authority and all of a sudden all the opinions magically match up with the one with real authority. Oh, oh yeah, that's what I was saying. The authoritative opinion is always or usually the one that really matters. So in this case, God's view of things is the ultimate authoritative opinion. When he speaks, the matter is settled. Jesus is lowly and unattractive in the world's eyes, but to God, the Father, he is chosen and precious. So the honor of identifying with Jesus of Nazareth lies not in what the world thinks about him, but what God thinks about him. Peter proves that this is God's opinion of Jesus by referencing the final authority on all matters, that is scripture. In verse 6, he quotes Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. He says, For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He also quotes Psalm 118, which we read this morning in verse 7, saying that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So as Christians, we we are and we will be accused of standing on uh, the wrong side of history for identifying with Jesus. But that shouldn't phase us. God's been planning to lay this cornerstone in Zion from the time of Isaiah, really from the time of eternity past. And the rejection of this cornerstone is no coincidence either. He planned and prophesied that as well here in Isaiah. So I I say if we're picking sides of history, we should pick the side with the one who decreed all of history. God announced through his prophets that the Messiah would be rejected. But he also said, any who do believe in him will not be put to shame. So that's a promise that that I hang my hat on. The first way in which then that it is an honor to identify with Jesus is that we believe in God's chosen and precious cornerstone, which gives us confidence in the face of any who who would try to shame us into unbelief. Now the second way in which it's an honor to identify with Christ is it's an honor the honor of being included in God's great construction project. The honor of being included in God's construction project. He says in verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. I was trying to figure out what it meant, what this word living stone means. That's a weird phrase. Stones aren't living not very many people commented on that. They talked about the living stone and its function, but they didn't talk about what it meant to be living. Uh, G.K. Beale had a good quote, though, I thought. He said, The mention of living refers to Christ as living in the sense of being a living, resurrected person. 
and the saints' identification with him indicates their resurrection status even now. So he's drawing a connection between the living stones and the new birth that we talked about in chapter 1. In other words, because Christ is living, we live too through our union with Christ. This means that Christ is the living cornerstone of God's building project. We too are living stones of the same project. Peter's readers, along with all Christians through the ages, can relate to Jesus' experience of being rejected. Jesus was rejected by the builders as as unfit for use. We too are set aside as unfit or unhelpful, unusable. The world is busy about its business, kind of developing great edifices, monuments, great political economic systems, great scientific discoveries, great military forces, and even great religions. And if we're honest, Christians can really be a stick in the mud when it comes to those great advances. We, we can really get in the way of these things. Uh, I think of the Romans. Their system was in large part built around calling Caesar Lord. And it was politically expedient to allow conquered peoples to continue to worship their gods as long as they said Caesar is Lord. Along come the Christians, stick in the mud, can't do it, can't call Caesar Lord. The Romans, you, you're impeding progress, you've got to be moved out of the way. Or today, you know, think of the things we can do with aborted fetuses. They're called people. Well, how inconvenient, right? We're sticking the mud. Consider Jesus. He is going to, you know, he's going to make Israel great again. He's going to oust the Romans. He's going to maybe coddle the egos of Jewish religious leaders. He doesn't do that. Crucify him. Christ followers aren't really much help to the Babel builders who are seeking utopia apart from God. And so we're, we're cast off as unusable refuse. But one man's trash is another man's treasure. God picked up that chosen and precious cornerstone, Jesus, and placed him as the cornerstone of his spiritual house. And then down through the ages, he's been picking us up. Little living stones, dusting us off and placing us as individual useful members of his church. In the world, honor is found in, in separating oneself from the, from the crowd. In fact, the world has kind of told my generation, you know, every one of you is a shooting star. You know we're not. <laughs> Most of us will never be a notable figure. Likely nobody will be, very few of us will be read about in, in history books. Most of us really will be just another brick in the wall. But contrary to popular opinion, that's okay. (coughs) No one gives a stone in a wall a second thought unless it's missing. Then that's noticeable. Calvin here is great on this point. He says, we must further observe that he conducts one house, constructs one house from the whole number of the faithful. For though everyone is 
Every one of us is said to be the temple of God, yet all are united in one, and we must be joined together by mutual love, so that one temple be ma- may be made of us all. Then, as it is true that each one is a temple in which God dwells by His Spirit, so all ought to be fitted together, that they make form one universal temple. This is the case when everyone, content with his own measure, keeps himself with the limits of his own duty. All have, however, something to do with regard to the others. So it's an honorable thing to live as a single living stone in the spiritual house of of God. Each stone plays a role in making up the walls. Each stone supports and is supported by all the other stones. Each stone was hand-picked and hand-placed in the wisdom of the divine mason. And each of us has the role to play given to us by God. So that is true honor, uh, to be used of God in the building of His church. So the first honor, again, of identification with Jesus was the belief in the chosen and the precious cornerstone of God. Second is inclusion in God's great construction project. Now third, the honor of communion with God. Communion with God. So verse 5 again, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Relationship is a two-way street. Communication goes both ways. So in the Old Testament, the the locus of God's presence was the tabernacle, the temple, uh, depending on the season. The primary way man communicated with God was through the mediation of the priesthood. Ed Clowney here says, To speak of a growing temple of living stone stretches an Old Testament figure to convey New Testament reality. The figure of the tabernacle or temple pictured in the presence of God among his people. God's tent was pitched in the center of Israel's wilderness camp. In the land of promise, God made the temple at Jerusalem his dwelling. God was there among his people. They belonged to him and he to them. This is the important part. He says, then when the word became flesh and tented or tabernacled among us, the symbol became reality. The God of glory came to dwell with us. The true temple is Christ's body. We are united to Christ. The living stones are joined to the cornerstone. In that way, the church becomes the true house of God. So, today the primary way God relates to the people is through the church via the means of grace, which we've been kind of hitting on in Sunday school. Even question 88, which we just are about to go into next week, I I suppose, asks, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us benefits of redemption? The answer, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So the church, as the spiritual house of God, is now that that primary locus of God's presence with us, just as the temple or tabernacle was in the Old Testament. Not only that, but He's given us direct access to Him 
He's made us, as he says, a holy priesthood. And we'll get more into that next week as he continues on that theme. But through Christ, that temple veil was torn in two. And now we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. (coughs) But these privileges of access are only for, for we who have come to Christ. Once again, we th- should be in- strengthened and emboldened by that honor. The honor really is for we who believe. So as we kind of encounter pressure from, from secularists who think faith is merely you know, the opiate of the masses, we, we need not shrivel and hide and, and step back into a defensive position because we know better than that. We experience the presence of God. We share communion with Him regularly as His spiritual house and as His holy priesthood. And so we delight in what they stumble over. Finally, the fourth great honor of identifying with Jesus is the honor of pleasing God. Pleasing God. Peter says we are being built up so that we might offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Some voices, I, I listen to a lot of things, and there's a lot of voices out there. And some voices would say, well, wait wait a minute, can we really please God? Are not all our deeds as filthy rags? Reformed people, especially, are very serious about defending justification by faith alone. And sometimes I think some Reformed people get overzealous and suppose that everything we do is so tainted by sin that we can never please God, even as Christians, in any measure. It's an interesting conundrum to think through. Times that that emphasis is so heavy on justification, we neglect the importance of a life lived in faith before God. So this text and others kind of run contrary to those sentiments. Uh, for example, Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Or Hebrews 13, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the confession here speaks really plainly and beautifully on this issue. Uh, 16, chapter 16, verse, uh, sections 5 and 6 are really helpful to me here. It says, we cannot, this is the chapter on good works. We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come. The infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable servants. And because they are good, they proceed from his spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Now, section 6 is the part that speaks to the question I'm bringing up. Notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in Him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable or unreprovable in God's sight, 
but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. That, that kind of solves that question for me. Where was that found? What uh, Westminster 16, 5 and 6. So all, all of that to arrive at this point is that it's an honor to be able to offer acceptable, pleasing sacrifices to God. Worship is pleasing to Him. Giving is pleasing to Him. Sacrificial love is pleasing to Him. Intercession and thanksgiving are pleasing to Him in Christ. In the world's eyes, we may be unprofitable fanatics, but in God's eyes, He is collecting unto Himself a people who are worshipers of His name. I think that's about the highest honor we could attain, is to be worshipers of the one true God. Notice how it is also, I kind of emphasize this already, but how we are able to to offer sacrifices pleasing to God. He says at the end of verse 5, explicitly through Jesus Christ. We can't forget that. It's only in coming to God's precious and chosen cornerstone that we are able to please God. So it is through coming to him who is dishonorable, rejected and despised by by the standards of the world that we are able to then attain honor, the honor of pleasing God. So we looked at the honor of belief. Now I want to just take briefly before we close a moment to look at the shame of disbelief that Peter brings up. So I'm going to read 6 through 8 again. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they do not, because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. There's no such thing as neutrality. Francis Schaeffer said it well. He said, There's a sad myth going around today, the myth of neutrality. According to this myth, the secular world gives every point of view an equal chance to be heard. And it works fairly well, unless you are a Christian. Why doesn't it work if you're a Christian? Because Jesus is exclusive. Either you believe or you don't believe you believe you are right with God through Christ if you do not believe you stumble over Christ and are at odds with God it's that cut and dried and there's there's no riding the fence with Jesus Christ always divides between belief and unbelief there's no middle ground so for the believer though there's much shame to be had in this world for identifying with Christ we possess honor ultimately before God and conversely the unbeliever may have honor in this world but in the end will be embarrassed because he's rejected the stone that God has laid Peter here explains in verse 8 this phenomenon of unbelief by quoting Isaiah 8 he says a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense is what he calls Jesus 
People stumble over Jesus because Jesus is not what they expect. He wasn't what they expected from a Messiah, you know, mighty conquering warrior king. He's not the king who came to rescue them from poverty or discomfort. They didn't expect this hypocrisy, decrying, donkey riding, feet washing, cross carrying man. So people get all tripped up on Jesus. And rather than submit to the truth of the word about Jesus, they, as he says, disobey as they were destined to do. Just as God prophesied about them in Isaiah, and as he decreed before the foundation of the world. I don't think Peter's purpose in decrying the unbeliever is to kind of scare people into belief, or to put unbelievers down. I think his purpose here is to encourage the saints who are at this moment suffering under the hands of these unbelievers as a result of their faith in Christ. Peter is kind of giving these saints a right perception of themselves because in their condition as it stands, it would be all too easy to kind of believe what the world says about them and about Jesus. It'd be easy for them to begin to feel shame for their identification with Jesus. So I think what Peter's purpose in this passage is is to say, look, yes, you are rejected and despised by the world, but in the in the grand scheme of things, you are the ones with all the honor, and all the shame belongs to those who despise you now. In setting the record straight, he's strengthening them and emboldening them to stand firm in their faith, even in the face of immense pressure. So what I hope this look at this text, a brief look does for us is that it emboldens us too, that it strengthens us, that as people seeking out to, seeking to live out the Christian life we see that this world is not our home and we're strangers we're aliens here but I want to encourage us not to, to give in to the pressures of society or to feel that sense of shame when, when people look down on us or malign us. It really is an honor to believe in He who was rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. Amen. Amen.